most tragic thing occurred at the time of Jesus. He discovered that God had been kicked out of religious settings. We don't read too far into Mark until we realize that Jesus was no longer welcomed at the synagogue. And so he had to teach at the beach. He had to go to um, gatherings of sinners and tax gatherers and face criticism. So I was thinking about this in preparation for our time together this morning. I had asked myself as we were singing this song, I wonder how many places that call themselves houses of God are honestly, truthfully, giving all the glory to God and all the praise goes to Jesus. I just wonder. I, I, I think it's safe to say that in many of the places called houses of God, Jesus is no longer welcome. We know this is true. The words of Christ are rejected. And where the word of God is rejected, the Son of God is not welcome. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 with me today? As we lead into finishing up chapter 2 of Mark and a little bit into chapter 3. Organized religion in the day of Jesus had shut him out. Because human nature insists on asking God to conform to us. And where God refuses to conform to us, we reject God. In today's circles, if Jesus doesn't conform to us, he's not welcome. Because he isn't the God that people want. I hope as we work our way through this text today that it will not be so of us as we check on our own lives, take stock of who we are. I've entitled this sermon this morning, The Purpose of Religion is Not Religion. In spite of the fact that the vast majority of our world thinks it is. To the Muslims, the purpose of Islam is Islam. To the Buddhists, the purpose of Buddhism is Buddhism. To the Hindus, the purpose of Hinduism is Hinduism. And sadly, to many Christians, the purpose of Christianity is Christianity. It is not. The purpose of Christianity is Christ. Christ alone. And there are systems of religion that are actually leading themselves and people to eternal death. Do you believe that? They're all around us. The commercialization of religion, the commodification of religion, the oppression of religion, the politicizing of religion, the parochialism of religion. All leading people to eternal death. 
And the big takeaway that Jesus offers isn't about how to do church for people who don't like church. Making it about style, making it about church practice. It is how to do church for people who don't like death. That's what Jesus came to teach. It's about upsizing life over stubborn form. It's about religious cultures giving way to God's revelation in Christ. Jesus came to correct things, and he was thrown out. So this morning, I want to look at three important Christian or kingdom matters from a big, long text that need to be brought into alignment with Christ's values. So if your Bibles are open, we're going to start in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to read right through to 3, verse um, 6. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake because he was not welcome in the synagogue. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot. So long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. 
Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of God. Is it welcome here this morning, this word of God? If it isn't, then Jesus isn't welcome. Our Father, as we spend some time now in this section of Christ's time among us, I pray, O oh God, that you would reach deep into each of our hearts for application. There's something here for everybody here today. I pray that we might not brush this off as something we've read many times or heard many times, but that we might be willing to listen to your voice to us in a fresh way this morning because your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God, to us, to the ones who are willing to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. I pray, O oh God, that we will not be a church that ejects Jesus like so many others, but that you would be welcome here, O oh Lord, that all the praise and all the honor and all the glory would go to Jesus, that our lives would so reflect a, an energy for Christ, Lord, that, that those around us would catch the fire of our faith in Christ. Let us be courageous in these days while everyone else is jettisoning or many are jettisoning the things of Jesus, the teachings of Christ. Let us hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let us not waver, I pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so we praise your name this day and we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit you will invade our souls today and remake us into the image and likeness of Christ our Savior, I pray for his name. In his name I pray, amen. In the matter of reaching out to sinners, Jesus has something to say to us. He was walking along the Sea of Galilee, the lake, it's called. If you haven't been there, you would be shocked at how small it is. Because when we think of lakes here, Lake Ontario, Lake Huron, Lake Superior, whatever, we, that's what we think lake. The Sea of Galilee is not like that. So there he walked along the shoreline of the lake, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, it says he saw Levi. Now, Levi was a tax gatherer, a tax collector. Nobody liked these guys. I don't know how you feel about tax collectors today. But at least we have rules and percentages and formulas. And we can understand uh, 
how tax works, and we have, we have tax shelters, and we have ways of mitigating the damage. We have, we have ways of, of understanding how we're being taxed. We're not shocked. We're not entirely excited about it, but we're not shocked by the taxes that are gathered from us. It wasn't like that then. They were, tax gatherers were contracted by the overruling government, and they were they were given basically a carte blanche. Go and collect whatever you want. We're going to charge you. We're going to charge you so much. But whatever you gather over that is yours. So there was no rhyme or reason to how you were taxed or how you were gouged. You were just ripped off all the time. So tax collectors were a hated class. There's no one would want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a tax collector. Tax collectors should go to hell. Nobody wanted a tax collector in heaven. Jesus shakes the bedrock of, of their value system by inviting a tax collector to be a follower of his. Now, I don't know what prejudices you have. I don't know what people you don't like. I don't know what people are on your least likely list to want to preach the gospel, but these were the guys. And Jesus sets a pace in terms of reaching sinners. He reached the worst of sinner, Levi, son of Alphaeus. We find out that he had a brother named James, son of Alphaeus, and the two of them, Levi was named Matthew, became disciples, not, not just a, a, a follower of Jesus, but a disciple of Jesus. And I want you to notice here that when he gets up and leaves his collector's booth to follow Jesus, he is walking away from his career for good. He's never coming back. I mean, he wasn't coming back to boats and nets like Peter and James and John did for a time. Levi had nothing to come back to. When Jesus tapped him on the shoulder and said, follow me, and he turned his back on his tax booth, he was putting his whole life in Jesus' hands, his whole livelihood, the very food that he would eat, the very shelter that he would have, the very future day after day that would be for him was set in motion for Jesus and Jesus alone. Now that's commitment, folks. That's dedication. And he couldn't hope that if this didn't work out, this Jesus gig didn't work out, that, that, that people would reference him and help him get another job. There was no one in his area that would give him a good reference. So we have Levi. And um, I, I think there's some important principles that Jesus teaches us about reaching lost people here that jarred the sensitivities of the people of his day. So who is it that Jesus reaches out to? Who can be saved? I mean, at the very base of this, if Levi can be saved, can you finish this sentence for me? 
Anybody can be saved. So set aside your human constructs, your human theological constructs this morning. Let's let Jesus teach us for a change, will we? If Levi can be saved, anybody can be saved. And um, here's the deal. All people are able to be saved. Your neighbor, your co-worker, everybody in your family, every single person in this world, everybody can be saved. Everybody is able to be saved. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for everybody. His crucifixion was sufficient for any human being in this world. All are able to be called by Jesus. Those he calls follow him and keep on following him. That's my construct from now on in soteriology, okay? That's it. Don't talk to me about anything else. That's my deal. All people are able to be saved. Those Jesus calls will follow him, and they'll follow him for the rest of their lives. That's the truth about Jesus' salvation. That's what he shows us here. He says to him, follow me. And how does the thing read? And you tell me. And he followed him. That's the deal. That's the deal in salvation. Jesus calls us to follow him, and we do. And we keep on following him. That's the beauty of this. The good news is that he welcomes all who show an interest in him. Now, um, there's a reason why he didn't call the Pharisees. You notice? Because he says, here's who I call. I call the sick. I call the soul sick people. I don't call righteous people. I call the sinners. I don't call the righteous. What's he talking about here? Don't we know from the scriptures that all have sinned? And have come short of the glory of God. So why is Jesus, is he establishing a whole separate class of people that are already righteous and don't need Jesus? No. He is, um, he is putting on a big billboard for all of us to read. There are people in our world who already think that they're too righteous for God. They don't, they don't need him. The Pharisees didn't need Jesus. They were already self-righteous. I saw an interesting exchange last week between a one of the drivers of the cars that were here and somebody here in the church who invited them to come and hear the service. And their answer was, uh, I don't think so. 
I've been honest all my life. See, um, there's a, a sad delusion that rests in people's hearts. Unless they come to terms with who they really are, and they credit themselves with things that are far above who they really are. It is those people that Jesus is saying, I don't call those people to myself. They don't need Jesus. These Pharisees, by the way, Jesus later called whitewashed sepulchers. You look spit clean on the outside, but inside, you're completely dead. He also said in, in Jesus' theology that doctors don't wait for sick people to get better and then engage them. People with sick souls should be pursued. <laughs> the Pharisees, by the way, it wasn't so much that they were hypocritical as they were hypercritical. Because to be hypocritical, you actually have to have something and you're acting differently than what you have. They actually didn't have anything. They were acting the way they really were. But they were hypercritical. And they accused Jesus of going and hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and criticizing him. And by the way, I want to put a pause on this again, put a side note on this. For all of the people out there who love for some reason to claim that Jesus was a radical party animal. No. A thousand times no. That's the desperate eisegesis of a of closet sinners masquerading as holy men. This is not the case. Jesus wasn't, this wasn't about Jesus hanging out at parties and, and endorsing parties and hanging out wild, having wild parties with sinners. That's not what this is about. Look, look at what it is. He, he was eating with them and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. He, he, Jesus wasn't joining in their sin. He was attending to their sickness. That's why he used the illustration of the doctor. Doctors don't wait for people to get better and then engage them. It's the sick who need a doctor. It's the sick souls that need a Jesus. That's what he's saying. And... Uh, Instead of looking down on sinners like some sort of contagious infection, Jesus actually looked for sinners that he might engage them in the truth. It's funny, you know, that people who are really sinful and down, they're the ones who kind of know that they aren't righteous. They're the ones who know they've got something empty in their lives. They're the ones who, who know that, they, that there must be something better than this. Instead, the Pharisees were how disgusting to be soul sick. That was their approach. Pharisees were treating sinners like they should know better and be better. 
Beloved, that's not the case. I wonder if we, if we look at people like that. We look at people who don't know Jesus as if they should know better. Why would they know better? Who has told them better? Who has shown them better? Why would we not have mercy and compassion and grace for people who don't know Jesus? Our Savior did. This is who he went to. Now, please understand, and we don't have a ton of time to develop this, but there is a very, because you're going you're gonna to ask some questions, I think. There's a very different approach expected towards those who are lost and sinning versus those who are in the family of God and making sinful choices. Okay, very briefly. Because people will say to us, wait a second, I, why then do you censor some sinners? Why do you, why do you disfellowship people then? Uh, why are you not uh, hanging out with them? There's a difference between those who've never heard of Jesus and those who claim to know Jesus and have chosen to rebel against him. A huge difference. Uh, as I said, we aren't going to take the time to go into it, but, but fel- we fellowship with those who are leaving sin. We disfellowship those who are reentering a life of sin that they might learn through the shock value to come back to Jesus or we might learn from their refusal to come back to Jesus that they never knew him in the first place. Secondly, in the matter of fasting, some people, it says, were chirping on Jesus because John, John the Baptist's disciples were fasting, the Pharisees' followers were fasting, but but Jesus' guys weren't fasting. So not only was, were Jesus and his guys having an eating problem, but now they're also having a fasting problem. You see, um, anybody who was really religious fasted every Monday and every Thursday in Jesus' day. And they made sure that everybody noticed looking roughed up, dust and ashes, moping around, look at me. And their fast wasn't all that big a deal, by the way. They fasted between six and six. Woo! That's a real fast. Okay, for some of you, that's a big deal. Come on, six to six. You can do this. Get up, gorge yourself at five, go through the day, at 6.01, smorgasbord. You can do this. That's not a big deal fast. Every Monday, every Thursday. And they were proud of themselves. And they were judging everybody who didn't, particularly Jesus guys. Now, before uh, you quickly jump all over the judgmentalism of the Pharisees, have a pretty well-developed thing going on in our, most of our lives ourselves in terms of externals. We look at each other and we make all kinds of judgments based on what we see on the outside, what, what we think is going on, what, what motivations we anticipate. Most of the times we're thinking people are more like ourselves than they really are, and it's shame on us for what we think about someone else. 
Who are you to know what's really going on in my heart? Who am I to really know what's going on in your heart? By what criterion can I look to? The only thing I can judge on is our obedience to the scriptures. And this fasting deal was part of their system. And Jesus says a couple of things. One, there is a time for fasting. But it wasn't then. The, 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 bottom, the, the point that Jesus is making here is, look, at, while the bridegroom is with these guys, and when, when a bridegroom is at the peak of his moment, is this a time for mourning? Yes, no, no. It's when the bridegroom skips out that it's the time for mourning. He says, there's going to come a time when the bridegroom is, is going to leave. Then my disciples will fast. He was already pre predicting his crucifixion right here. The point he's making is there's a time for fasting, but joyful citizens of the kingdom should do more feasting than fasting. We, we are, for the most part, living in a time of great joy in Christ. There is a time for reaching out in the urgency of fasting, but that shouldn't be our daily routine. The spiritual value in fasting must be entirely related to Jesus, not some sort of custom, not some sort of tradition, not some sort of Monday, Thursday ritual. It should be on the basis of great leading of Christ. So Jesus says here, do I have the authority to, to decide on fasting or not? I mean, has fasting no longer become about God, Jesus is saying? I'm the one who gets to decide. My very presence is the determining factor, not your tradition. There is absolutely a time for fasting. But their fasting was for the purpose of gaining favor with God. If you think that fasting gains you more favor with God, you are wrong. There is nothing that you can do that will gain you more favor with God from your own works. We are favored by God by His grace. We serve Him because we love Him, not to gain more favor from Him. And they were looking for man's approval. When you put on religious airs, when you, when you are trying to carry yourself around externally, showing off to people, giving people the impression that you've got way more going on spiritually than you really do, Jesus won't have it. Jesus is about honesty, transparency, uh, submission to God. Fasting is for the purpose of learning to discipline our appetites, in particular to teach us to say no to sin, not to show off to people, not to gain some sort of favor with God. Lord, if I fast, I, Lord, I want this to happen. I want this car or I want this job. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fast every day and then you're going to owe me this car. You're going to owe me this job. Forget it. It's not going to happen. Fasting is to, to respond to a, a needed focus on Christ that he lays on our hearts. De, de, more dependency on him and learning that. 
Now, he, as far as Jesus is concerned, ritualistic Christianity is of no value whatsoever. Ritual to gain favor is worn out religion and not compatible with the kingdom of God. Reformation must give way to whole-scale transformation. There is nothing about Christ that can simply be retrofitted into our rituals. This is why Jesus gives them this illustration of shrunken garments and old wineskins. To the seamstresses among us. Or seamstress. What's a a guy if he's a seamstress? A tailor. There you go. So if you got a tailor here, I'm trying to be politically correct this morning. Setting off on a new pathway for myself. A new leaf. Tailors, seamstresses. If you have a, a garment that's already been worn and it's been washed and it's already shrunken. And it gets a hole in it. You don't put a patch on it of new material. Why? Because that new material is going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's going to tear that old fabric and make a worse tear in the thing than you had in the first place. And nobody puts new wine, not that I know anything about this, nobody puts new wine in an old wineskin. Why? An old wineskin is stretched as much as it can. And you put new, new bubbly in there, which is still going to expand some more. I, I, I just read the text. I don't know anything about this. It explodes. And Jesus isn't talking about tailoring and wine drinking. He's talking about the fact that if you think that you can follow Jesus and sort of fit him into your old religious systems, jerry-rig him in wherever you can, forget it. Jesus is a whole new deal. There's so many people who are like, I I don't want to give up sort of my old thing, my old religious. I like some of my old religious traditions and I'm just trying to put Jesus in there and see how he fits and how he works. That's not how it works. I I love the rituals and I love the traditions and I I love the way we we do this church or that church and and, and, uh, I'm going to bring Jesus into into how I've been living and where he fits is fine, but, but where he doesn't fit, I'm just going to try to patch him in. Jesus is saying, forget it. If you try to do that, your whole life is going to explode. I'm a whole new deal. If you're going to follow me, it's like Levi. You just reject everything. You follow me. You You can't fit me in. I am it. Jesus doesn't tweak things in our lives. He completely reshapes everything about us. And every day of our lives, we need to leave open to that. Leave it open for Jesus. For Jesus to... If we set rigid boundaries, like an old wineskin... And you may have been a Christian forever. You've, you've settled in a routine. You know who you are and all of that stuff. Jesus is still calling out to you and say, you better leave room for fresh stuff. Jesus is a, 
is active and relational and he's not ritual and tradition and history on a page. He is a real living God, a real living being, really involved in your life today and continuing to reshape you and you better leave lots of room and not be rigid for what Jesus wants to do in changing your life. The most dangerous times of our lives and I'm speaking as, a, as an old guy, is as we get older. As we get older. We got this all figured out. Got Jesus figured out. Got church figured out. Got Christianity figured out. Got our routines figured out. And we get rigid. <laughs> Jesus isn't going to pour his life into an old wineskin. He's just not. Finally, um, I haven't left myself much time for a very important subject, but in the matter of Sabbath and Lord's Day deeds, let me just say uh, that the guys were going through the grain field picking grain. They were hungry. Pharisees were looking at them as usual. Instead of hearing Jesus, they were always looking. Be careful. Be careful. Your ears are better than your eyes when it comes to theology. Everywhere in the Bible it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. It doesn't say he who has an eye, let him see. Stop looking and start listening. They're looking, looking. They were looking later for, looking for an opportunity to, to get him into trouble. Be careful. The Sabbath had become nuts, all right? There were thousands of petty rules and regulations. It's ridiculous. There were 39 different subsections and headings. And here we have the disciples galloping across a grain field, incurring game misconduct style offenses. You're out of here, guys. Okay, that's what, that's what this was about. And Sabbath had become a regulated burden for people. And everybody was looking at each other to see who's really pious, who's really following God, even though they were rules made up by men. Judging each other all the time. I remember back in the day growing up, you know, my, my gram in my grandmother's day, they had to make the Sunday meal on Saturday. Because you weren't allowed to cook on Sunday. Somehow they got around the thing of heating it up. That's the problem with rules and regulations that God never gave us. It starts to look silly. You know, when we look back and talk about things, I can remember, man, we, in my day, no TV on Sunday. You couldn't get out of your Sunday clothes. For me to leave the house on Sunday to be with my friends, I had to go out like this. And I used to go to my friend's place like this, seriously, and play road hockey in my good clothes. And my friends thought I was a complete lunatic. I come home, you know, just trash the clothes and sweat and everything, but it was okay because they, they didn't notice that I was still in my Sunday best. So 
So that's the way it was, and we had all kinds of stuff like that, and a lot of you have had all kinds of stuff like that. And Jesus says, stop. Stop this. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. You guys aren't made for Sunday. Sunday is made for you. The Sabbath is made for you. The Sabbath is a gift from God at creation for his human and animal kingdom, by the way, creation, at least the domestic ones. Jesus is not a burden. He is a burden lifter. And if you turn the day that he has given for us into a burden, what message is that sending about Jesus? The Pharisees had made man a slave to the very regulations that were to free us. The heart of what God has for us on Sabbath is not performance of rules and regulations. By the way, that's easy. Just, the reason Islam is so popular is because it just has a few rules and regulations. It's easy. The heart of Christianity is not rules and regulations. It's love and forgiveness and service and mercy. That's hard stuff. That's stuff you can't do without God. And he gives him a couple of examples here. David, when he was hungry, went in and ate the bread that was supposed to be for the priest and gave it to his companions, and God was fine with that. And then he takes a man with a shriveled hand and says, what about this guy? Can I fix him today? Now, Jesus is just saying, bring it on. Can I fix this guy today? And they were silent and he was furious because they, he, he pointed out their duplicity and they were refusing to say a thing. And he heals the guy on the Sabbath. And what's their response? They get together with the Herodians. Do you know who the Herodians are? They weren't people who were interested in God. They were people who were serving Herod. Now, folks, you know you're really in trouble. When you leave church and you criticize the teaching and you criticize the church to pagans and plot against the teaching and the church, you know you've really gone to the lowest place you can go. So let me close this way by saying, more than simply refraining from work, the reason that God gave us the Sabbath, which the Sabbath principle, Sunday, that we exercise the Lord's Day, or whatever day is your Sabbath, the reason that it was given is that we might be freed up from our work so that we would be freed to spend time with God and rest. How many of you are exhausted? Well, I have good news for you. 
That's what today is for. Today is to rest, get refreshed in God, see your heart expand, your soul get rich and healthy, your body come back to vibrancy and energy, that Monday you might be ready for the next week. Having been with God, having set aside your work, and by the way, stop replacing the work of our earning with the work of recreation. Many Christians are exhausted because they just exchange one for the other. They're slaves to work all week long and they're slaves to recreation materialism and they're piles of toys on Sunday. And they wonder, why am I exhausted on Monday? Why does my relationship with God seem to be so lacking in freshness? You're violating the gift that God has given to you. I can tell you, you know what the big talk of pastors is right now? How are we going to get people to come to church more than once a month? I know that doesn't apply to all of you. But that we can squeeze two services into one service in the summer says something to us, doesn't it? This is a time where we are not to be slaves to our own rituals, our own toys, our own materialism, but rather we are freed from all of that to be with God. That's why Jesus said, is this day good for doing good, for helping people? Would that be okay? There is um, a type of religion that masquerades as representative of God, and yet it specializes in missing the point and leading people to death. It is rigid and ritualistic, and it promotes external favor with God, and Jesus makes that religion explode. Not in a good way. So I trust today that we will learn all over again from Jesus about what it means to reach sinners and what fasting is and is not and about the Sabbath, the Lord's day reserved for him. The world religions around us are people searching for God. Christianity is God searching for people. I know of a church that throws a Christmas party for prostitutes. It's done so for a couple of years. Would you like to be a part of a church like that? You are. The point of spiritual disciplines isn't discipline. It's the Spirit of God. It's drawing close to Jesus. The Pharisees' fasting didn't help them to even notice that God was standing right in front of them. 
Somehow there's something wrong with our spiritual disciplines if we can't even notice God when he's standing right in front of us. The purpose of fasting isn't fasting. And the point of prayer isn't prayer. It's always Jesus. And if your religion trades one ritual for another, if your use of God's gifts of time is to trade one burden for just another crazy burden commitment, you've become a slave to the day instead of freed by it. You've missed God who made the day for you. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to continue to abuse the Lord's day, why should he continue to give it to us? It can go away, you know. The purpose of religion, beloved, is not religion. It's Jesus and our need for Jesus. Our Father, I pray this morning that you will take your words to us. And as I asked at the beginning to craft them to the specific message you have for each of us. Somewhere in there, Lord, there's something that isn't in sync with Jesus' heart for us. And I pray that we would deal with it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, if you look at those stories we talked about this morning, you'll notice that, that for the most part, what they did is stood everything on its head. What they were supposed to be about, they were not, and what they were, didn't need to be about, they were. That seems to be the way we do things. We spend long enough trying to make religion fit the way we want it to be. Pretty soon, we're only looking for a God who is in our own image. And pretty soon, that God, the real God, doesn't feel welcome anymore in our lives or in our churches. Can you imagine with horror, with, with be aghast that if Jesus were to appear and say, no, I don't fit here, I, I, I don't belong here. The thought of that is unthinkable. But what they weren't doing is the things that most mattered, which was giving time to the Lord, mercy, love, forgiveness, service. All of those things. So let's be careful in our own lives, not just the lives of our church as a group, but in our own personal lives, both and. Are we doing things that we were never asked to do and they're becoming a burden to us? Get rid of those things. Are we not doing what we've been asked to do and growing distant from the Lord. We need to get back at that. Father, we pray and thank you for your truth to us and your word. It's not hard to understand, but it takes commitment and your strength to apply it. And I pray that that would take place in our lives. Help us to really want Jesus to be our all in all, I pray. In his name, amen.